It's December 31st, 2019. And all over the world, people are getting ready to see the new year in. For 28-year-old Rebecca Hogue, though, it's just another night at work. Rebecca is a cocktail waitress at Riverwind Casino in the town of Norman, Oklahoma. She often works all hours of the night, and today is no different. The shifts are tough on her as she has a two-year-old son, Ryder. Luckily, her boyfriend, 38-year-old Christopher Trent, is able to take care of him while Rebecca works. Trent isn't Ryder's dad, but seems to have struck up a good relationship with the boy in the six months he and Rebecca have been together. While Trent and Ryder stay home in front of the TV, it's a busy evening for Rebecca. She's constantly on the go, refreshing drinks to the soundtrack of slot machines and cheering from the craps tables. Despite this, she still manages to make time around nine for a video call. Ryder's smiling face is all the pick-me-up she needs. He and Trent are cuddled up on the sofa, enjoying a quiet night in. Ryder tells his mom that he loves her, and she heads back to work with a spring in her step. By the time Rebecca gets off, many of those there to see in the new year have drifted away, and she heads home exhausted. It's around 3 a.m. when she tiptoes into her room. Trent and Ryder are asleep in the bed, and Rebecca crawls in between them. She has just enough energy left to lean in and give her son a kiss. He feels cool to the touch, so she tucks him in, worried that the room is too cold. She can't keep her eyes open any longer, though, and drifts off to sleep. She wakes up later that morning around 11 a.m. Ryder lies beside her, but she sees something is terribly wrong with her baby boy. His face is marked with bruises, and to her horror, it doesn't look like he's breathing. Instantly, panic sets in. Rebecca turns to her boyfriend for help, but he's nowhere to be seen. She calls 911, and Ryder is rushed to hospital where paramedics and doctors fight to save him. But Rebecca is hit with tragic news later that day that her son has died. The one man who can provide answers is nowhere to be found for days. When police finally track him down, he has taken his own life. But before he did, Trent made a stunning deathbed confession that many believe clears Rebecca of any wrongdoing. The DA, however, has other ideas. Rebecca's troubles have only just begun. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Christopher Trent, the boyfriend who is far from the Mr. Perfect image he tries to portray, the messages he left behind before he died, about a young mother trying to provide for her family, whose life is turned upside down by a horrific incident that she played no part in, and a justice system determined to make someone pay for a tragedy they say could have been prevented. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions.
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Rebecca Hogue hasn't had the best of luck when it comes to relationships. She has had something of a rocky record in the past. When she was 15, her first boyfriend was physically abusive towards her. Sadly, he was just one of the many who treated her like this. Over the years, she's dated a string of partners who have hit her, choked her, thrown her out of a moving car. One even pulled a gun on her. When she becomes pregnant in 2016, she hopes that it'll get her relationship with her partner, Jeremiah Johnson, on a more even keel. She gives birth to a son, Ryder, in 2017. He quickly becomes the center of her world. Sadly, though, her relationship with his father follows a similar pattern to those that have come before. Jeremiah ends up being sent to jail on a charge of interfering with a 911 call. He had taken Rebecca's cell phone from her as she was trying to report him for being physically abusive towards her. Newly single, Rebecca hasn't given up on the dream of a happy home life. But it's hard as a single mom to get out there and meet new people. So she decides to try online dating. In July 2019, 28-year-old Rebecca meets up with one of the guys she's chatted with. A 38-year-old man by the name of Christopher Trent. He makes her laugh, he's easy to get along with, and most importantly, makes an effort to bond with her son. For Rebecca, he's like a breath of fresh air. After dating for a few months, Rebecca asks him to move in with her and Ryder. As they get to know each other, he shares that he has a DUI charge on his record. This might put some people off, but Rebecca is swayed by his frank admission and the steps he has taken to put it behind him. She in turn tells him about her abusive ex-partners. Trent seems the polar opposite to these men. According to her, he doesn't even raise his voice to her. He's good to her son. He tells her she's safe with him, and it feels like everything she's ever wanted. But Trent isn't quite as cool and calm as Rebecca thinks. In December 2019, a little over five months since they met, the first signs of what's to come begin to surface. And the side of him that he has hidden from her 
could spell danger for her son. It's December 19th, 2019. Christmas is just around the corner and Rebecca should be focusing on buying presents and spending time with her family. But she notices something on Ryder that triggers alarm bells. There's a bruise on his left ear. She asks her son how it happened, but he refuses to tell her. She snaps a picture of it on her phone before taking him to the doctors to get it checked out. The examination doesn't turn up anything suspicious. It's just a bruise. She asks Trent, but he dismisses it as the kind kids get all the time. But this is not enough to satisfy Rebecca's curiosity. She does a quick search for signs of how a child might act if they were being abused. After reading through the document she downloads, she decides to believe Trent's explanation that these things are inevitable with toddlers. But two days later, she discovers Ryder has a split lip. She takes another picture, but doesn't head back to the doctors this time. Once again, she clings onto the belief that marks like these are perfectly normal. Toddlers are prone to falling down and running into things. Rebecca, Ryder, and Trent enjoy a quiet Christmas, and thoughts of his bumps and bruises fade like the marks themselves. That is, until December 29th, when she spots another larger bruise next to Ryder's hairline. Like the previous marks, it has appeared while Rebecca was out of the house and Trent was watching Ryder. She adds a picture of this to the others and confronts Trent, asking if he knows what happened. He shrugs and tells her that boys will be boys, that all kids get nicks and bruises. The following day, as Rebecca is giving Ryder a bath, she can't help but notice he's not himself. He seems lethargic, and she asks Trent if he knows what's up. Trent says the boy might just have the flu. Later, after Ryder is in bed, Rebecca opens up her phone and searches for flu symptoms. Even though her son's behavior is unusual, Trent's explanation seems so plausible. So she lets it drop. It's a decision she'll regret for the rest of her life. Behind every missing person is a story to be told. Look closely at the details and you may just find the answers. Find the answers, find the truth. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases, tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. From the tragedies of Amelia Earhart and Charles Lindbergh Jr. to the mysterious circumstances surrounding Tierra Williams and the Iguala mass kidnapping, each week on Disappearances, we're spotlighting the stories you thought you knew and the ones you'll be shocked to discover. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The truth is out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. New Year's Day 2020. Last night's long shift at work has taken its toll on Rebecca, and it's 11 a.m. by the time she wakes. The first thing she becomes aware of is that it's just her and Ryder in bed. Trent had mentioned something about a work appointment, so she assumes he's off dealing with that. She notices the time. That she's been allowed to sleep in this late strikes her as unusual. Ryder normally wakes her up much earlier. She rolls over to look at him and knows straight away that something isn't right. He's too still. A wave of panic washes over her as she realizes he isn't breathing. She calls 911. I just woke up next to my son, she tells the operator. He's cold, he's not breathing. Is he conscious? The operator asks. He's blue, Rebecca says. He's not breathing. Paramedics are dispatched immediately, and when they arrive at Rebecca's house, they find her upstairs in the bedroom with Ryder, performing CPR on him. She steps back and lets them take over. They carry him downstairs to the ambulance, and police officers on site usher Rebecca into their car rather than letting her ride with her son. This strikes her as odd, but she's not in any fit state to argue back. When they arrive at the Norman Regional Hospital, police take Rebecca into a private room. They start to piece together what has happened, while doctors attend to Ryder. She's interviewed by Detective Sean Judy and his partner, Ryan Brule. Rebecca tells him about coming home after work, how she remembers her son feeling cold, but says that he was definitely still breathing then. At some point, she calls her boyfriend Christopher Trent, but she can't get a hold of him. Multiple calls go unanswered, until finally he picks up and Rebecca tells him the heartbreaking news. I think we lost him, she says through the tears. Rebecca is stunned by what happens next. The line goes dead. She calls him back, but it goes straight to voicemail. She texts him, telling him she needs him at the hospital, but just like the call, this too goes unanswered. Trent's behavior strikes her as more than just odd, her mind wanders to the injuries she has seen on Ryder, and the thought she's dismissed until now looms large in her mind. It seems obvious that Christopher Trent has somehow hurt her son. How badly is something she can't bring herself to think about. The hours that follow, not knowing what's happening with Ryder, are some of the toughest that any parent can endure. Eventually, Rebecca gets the news she's been dreading. It plays out like a scene from a movie. A doctor comes in to see her, a somber expression on their face. They tell her that while they tried everything they could, they couldn't save Ryder. You'd think things couldn't get any worse for Rebecca Hogue. You'd be wrong. Rebecca Hogue has just endured the worst 24 hours of her life. Her two-year-old son has died, but now she must face another heartbreak. 
that her boyfriend, Christopher Trent, is the one police suspect of killing him. The medical examiner has declared that Ryder's death was the result of blunt force trauma to the head and abdomen. The manner of death? Homicide. The police are desperate for answers. In their interviews with Rebecca, she appears to be telling the truth, but they don't rule her out as a suspect just yet. Was she really ignorant to the abuse Ryder suffered? Or does she know more than she's letting on? These are questions the investigation must try and answer later. For now, their sights are set firmly on the man they believe is most likely to blame for Ryder's death, Christopher Trent. Police begin a statewide manhunt for Trent. They believe he's fled to somewhere in the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge. It's a conservation area sprawling over 60,000 acres in total, so finding him is by no easy feat. They scour the scrublands and forests looking for any sign of where he might be. It isn't until three days after Ryder's death, on January 4th, that they find him. But when they do, it's too late to bring him in. Trent has taken his own life. Beside the body, police make a startling discovery. Trent has made a cross from two tree branches, planting it in the ground like a gravestone. On it, he has carved several messages. One reads simply, Sorry, Mom, with a heart ingrained in the wood on either side of the words. To the left of that is another heart, this one with a single word beside it. Rider. It's the final message they see that really hits home, scored deep into the wood in capital letters. Rebecca is innocent. With a deathbed confession like that, seemingly claiming responsibility for Ryder's death, you'd be forgiven for thinking this is the end of the investigation and that Rebecca can focus on grieving for her son. Sadly for her, she's a long way from getting any kind of closure. There seems little doubt that Trent is the one who killed Ryder, but in the state of Oklahoma, Rebecca, as the boy's mother, must also be investigated. This is due to a piece of legislation called the Failure to Protect Law. Basically, parents who fail to protect their children from child abuse can be charged with the same crimes as the actual abuser. It's not enough to just show Rebecca wasn't aware of any abuse. If detectives determine that she should have reasonably known about it, she could receive the same sentence Trent would have if he was alive. Despite the pressure that being the focus of an investigation brings, Rebecca continues to cooperate fully. She agrees to a series of follow-up interviews and even willingly hands over her phone to detectives. Going through her files, they find the pictures she's taken of Ryder's injuries, some of which she had sent to Trent. Her browser history shows searches such as symptoms of flu and signs of a concussion. One particular item that concerns them is a document she downloaded on December 19th, 12 days before Ryder's death. It's called Early Warning Signs of Potential Abuse. She tells police how she'd confronted Trent, how he'd had an explanation for everything. Whether she should have seen through the noise is the question that detectives now need to answer. 
By January 12th, however, the police investigation is closed down at the request of the district attorney's office. Hours of interviews haven't given detectives anything that suggests charges should be filed against Rebecca. Rebecca can now devote herself to coming to terms with losing her son. It promises to be a long road for her, but she has help along the way in the form of a domestic violence advocate who works alongside detectives. Their role is to guide her through everything from possible criminal charges to bereavement counseling. She continues to receive support from them in the days that follow. As it turns out, Rebecca will need every ally she can get. A few weeks after the police investigation closes, she's surprised to hear that the district attorney's office has changed its mind. For reasons unknown, the DA is revisiting the case. Rebecca's domestic violence advocate finds this news concerning. And in April 2020, they speak to the lead detective on the case, Sean Judy. Turns out they're right to be worried. They want to charge mom, says the detective. They want to charge her with first-degree murder? The advocate asks. The response is short and to the point. Yeah. The thing that surprises Rebecca's domestic violence advocate most is the fact that none of the detectives who investigated the case agree with the DA's approach. As far as police are concerned, Rebecca has done everything they've asked of her. She's complied with all their requests, attended each of the five interviews they arranged, and happily handed over her phone. At no point did she even ask for an attorney. To them, this is the behavior of someone with nothing to hide. Detective Judy even tells the advocate they were able to corroborate everything Rebecca told them. It's not a great case, Detective Judy admits, but they're pushing ahead anyway. In July, three months after this conversation takes place, the DA formally indicts her for first-degree murder. The astonishing thing about this decision is that they haven't carried out a single interview. It's based entirely on the original case file, the same case file that led detectives to conclude that there was no cause to charge Rebecca. Rebecca's attorney, Andrew Casey, believes the DA needs to level the blame at someone in the absence of Trent himself. Sadly for Rebecca, that someone is her. The unfortunate truth is that the state's decision to prosecute a case like Rebecca's isn't an isolated incident. The failure to protect law is one that many have campaigned to overturn for years. Its detractors point out the way in which it disproportionately affects mothers. Research shows that in Oklahoma, one in four women charged under this law receive a longer sentence than the abuser themselves. There was a high-profile case back in 2019. A woman named Tonda Lau Hall had been sentenced under the same failure to protect law. Her boyfriend had broken the ribs and femur of their three-year-old daughter. While he was given probation, Tonda Lau was sentenced to 30 years behind bars, all thanks to the failure to protect law. She had served 15 of them when the American Civil Liberties Union stepped in and filed a lawsuit based on the huge difference in the sentencing. Hall had her sentence commuted by the governor and was set free. 
Off the back of this, pressure had mounted to add extra provisions to the law in order to protect victims of domestic violence and reduce sentences. Unfortunately, the movement lost momentum when the District Attorney's Association opposed it. What this means for Rebecca is that if convicted, she could face the same sentence she would have if she'd killed her son herself. Life without parole. It's July 2020. Six months have passed since Ryder's death. Rebecca's case attracts the attention of a cable TV show called Accused, Guilty or Innocent. Once again, Rebecca is an open book. She agrees to allow a camera crew to film the buildup to the trial. This will include access to meetings between her and her attorney, Andrew Casey. Casey has taken on her case pro bono, meaning he won't charge Rebecca a penny. It's a sign of just how much he believes in the unjust nature of the charges against her. Casey tells the documentary makers he believes they have a strong case. One huge ace up his sleeve comes from Rebecca's domestic violence advocate. It turns out that they had secretly recorded their conversations with Detective Judy, capturing everything the lead investigator had said word for word. In one of their talks, Detective Judy had said he didn't believe there was any evidence to suggest Rebecca could have prevented Ryder's death. Casey is convinced that this evidence will lead to a verdict of not guilty. But he knows that the state will do everything they can to show that Rebecca knew exactly the kind of threat Christopher Trent posed. They'll try and pick her apart on the stand to hammer this point home. Casey prepares Rebecca as best he can to handle this and the pressure of the upcoming trial. They don't have long. The court date is set for November. Part of Casey's strategy is to highlight the fact that Rebecca is a victim here too. Not just of Christopher Trent, but of a series of ex-partners, including Ryder's biological father. In one interview captured by filmmakers in August, three months before her court date, Rebecca speaks quite candidly about her past. She lists a heartbreaking catalog of abuse she's suffered over the years. Casey asks her if having lived through all of this, she saw any warning signs that Trent was yet another abuser. No, she says. Chris didn't raise his voice at me. He told me he didn't put his hands on women. He told me I was safe with him. Casey says that Trent's claim was a lie. He believes that Trent had manipulated Rebecca into thinking he was the man of her dreams. This is why he'll tell a jury that Rebecca couldn't see the threat he posed. Trent was every inch the wolf in sheep's clothing. So Casey's plan, as counterintuitive as it seems, is to show the jury how great Trent appeared to be rather than the abusive murderer he already was. In September, two months before the trial, he sends one of his team, Austin Vance, on the road to track down any witnesses that can paint Trent in a positive light. The first person Vance speaks to is a work friend of Rebecca's, a fellow cocktail waitress, Kidra Lejeune. She remembers Trent as very polite and respectful, easy to talk to. He was just a really nice, genuine person, she tells Vance. Other friends talk about how dedicated a mom Rebecca was, how her world revolved around Ryder. Vance speaks to a long-standing friend, Taylin Mitchell, 
who has known Rebecca for over a decade. He asks her as a mother herself, whether she would still trust Rebecca to look after her kids. Taylin nods, wiping away tears. I trust her with my life. I trust her with my baby's lives. He heads back to report in with Casey. With everything that Vance has heard, he can't imagine any jury not taking pity on Rebecca. The DA won't go easy on her though, and Casey sets clear expectations around what he thinks they'll come after. One of the biggest concerns for him are the documents she downloaded about signs of child abuse a week before Ryder died. The DA will say these show Rebecca at least had an idea that her son was being abused and should have done more to protect him. With two weeks left to go before the trial starts, Andrew Casey calls a meeting with Rebecca to tackle the issue of the documents head on. The PDFs in question are titled, What are signs of child abuse? Casey believes that there is a reasonable explanation for her having downloaded them. I'm just always on high alert in any relationship, Rebecca says, for myself and my son. She explains she read the PDFs for peace of mind. According to the documents, warning signs of abuse include behavioral and learning problems, as well as significant physical injuries like broken bones, burns, or bites. Rebecca says she had seen none of these, nor was there any hint of fear from Ryder whenever she left him alone with Trent. She tells Casey that she genuinely believed that there was no abuse going on in her home. Casey believes her in the narrative they're constructing for her defense. But as much as Rebecca wants to have confidence in her lawyer, she knows that nothing is guaranteed once she steps into that courtroom. She needs to prepare herself for the harsh reality that this might not go her way. Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. The day of Rebecca Hoag's trial has finally arrived. Andrew Casey is getting his paperwork in order before they head inside. The fight starts now, he says. Then he and Rebecca disappear into the courtroom. He's about to find out just how tough a battle he has on his hands. The assistant DA, Patty High, goes hard on the allegation that Rebecca knew about the abuse and looked the other way. As if being on trial for her son's murder isn't bad enough, Rebecca has to sit through prosecution exhibits that include dozens of pictures of Ryder's dead body. Some of these are left on screen for up to 10 minutes at a time. Casey's view is that they're looking to get the jury to make an emotional decision, forcing them to look at a horrific series of images and feel that somebody has to pay for what happened. Rebecca has to sit through a full week of people building a picture of her as a mother who allowed her child to be killed before the prosecution finally rests on day seven of the trial. Now it's Andrew Casey's turn, but literally minutes before he's about to call their first witness, the prosecution raises a series of objections designed to rip their case apart. They go after people whose testimony is critical to Rebecca's defense. Firstly, Judge Michael Tupper rules that the lead detective cannot tell the jury why he dropped Rebecca's case. The legal basis for the decision is unclear. Next is a secret recording that Rebecca's advocate made of Detective Judy saying he didn't believe Rebecca should be charged. 
it's ruled inadmissible. The exact reason for this isn't clear. After this, they attack the carvings that Christopher Trent made before he killed himself. This deathbed confession includes the words that proclaim Rebecca's innocence. These, the judge says, are hearsay, as they can't question Trent to corroborate that he made them himself, or that it is related to Ryder's death. Finally, Casey is told that they cannot call their domestic abuse expert to the stand. This is down to the fact that the abuse towards Rebecca is seen as coercive control rather than physical. It's a series of devastating blows. In the end, the only witnesses the defense call are two police officers, a doctor, and two character witnesses. The only other person left now who might testify is Rebecca herself. She initially says she'll do it, but after a night of soul searching, she decides against it at the last minute. She's petrified that the prosecution will twist her up in knots and paint her to be a monster. If she's not in a good place emotionally and mentally, she could do more damage to her case than good. As a result, the entire defense case only takes one day. Wednesday, November 11th. With nobody else to call, the defense rests. All Rebecca can do now is hope. I have to have faith in the justice system, she says, looking anything but confident. It turns out she doesn't have long to wait to hear her fate. The jury deliberate for only two and a half hours. The jury foreman passes a slip of paper containing the verdict to the judge. When he reads it out, the decision is unanimous. Guilty of first degree murder. In the eyes of the jury, Rebecca should have seen the signs and prevented the abuse that led to Ryder's death. Rebecca walked into the courthouse a free woman, but she's let out in cuffs, flanked by a pair of burly sheriff's deputies. Andrew Casey watches on as she's remanded into custody until her sentence hearing. They took this tragedy, this death of a child, he says, and got the jury angry enough where they would go with it. The length of time she'll spend inside will be down to Judge Tupper, but that hearing won't take place until after New Year. In the meantime, Andrew Casey vows to keep on fighting. He and his team now face the task of persuading Judge Tupper that justice won't be served by imposing a life sentence. Over the next three months, Andrew Casey works tirelessly on Rebecca's behalf, building the best case he can in favor of a lenient sentence. He draws heavily on Rebecca's previous experiences as a victim of domestic violence. The 31-page submission they file on January 28, 2022, calls out the abuse they believe she suffered at Trent's hands. Not physical like her previous partners, but emotional. How he brushed off questions and gaslit her about the bruises and cuts she had seen on her son as ordinary for a young and active boy. By the time of the sentencing hearing on February 11th, 2022, Rebecca has already spent three months behind bars. She shuffles into the courtroom, shackled at her ankles and wrists, wearing a bright orange prison uniform. This time, Rebecca does testify, 
she's able to tell her story rather than have it told for her. I would have done anything to prevent the abuse that happened, she tells the court. Judge Michael Tupper listens to this in Andrew Casey's arguments. Finally, he is ready to issue his verdict. Rebecca and her legal team brace for the worst. The judge upholds the conviction. When it comes to prison time, though, it's far shorter than the life sentence the jury recommended. Rebecca is sentenced to 16 months. This equates to a month for every year until Ryder would have reached 18. You do not deserve to die in prison, says Judge Tupper as he hands down the sentence. You are not a monster. You have value and you have worth. With the three months already spent inside, this means Rebecca will be released in January 2023. She'll still be a convicted felon. At least, though, she'll be out on parole for the last few months of her sentence, with the freedom that many think she deserves. Rebecca is taken away to the Dr. Eddie Warrior Correctional Facility. Andrew Casey confirms that they do not intend to appeal the decision. As much as Rebecca wants to clear her name, there's a real possibility that an appeal judge could disagree with Judge Tupper and extend rather than reduce her time inside. It's a chance they're not willing to take, and she keeps her head down, counting down the days till her release. While she serves her time, the debate about the failure to protect law rumbles on. In April 2022, a spokesperson for the governor of Oklahoma says that the governor still intends to revisit it as part of a larger effort to realign sentencing guidelines in the state. If or when that will actually happen is another matter. Two months later, in June of 2022, the documentary about her case is released. It's an unflinchingly honest portrayal of one mother's heartbreaking journey. The reactions to it on social media are heavily in Rebecca's favor. This wave of public support won't change what happened to Rebecca or reverse her conviction. What it might do though, is shine a spotlight on a law that many believe needs a substantial overhaul. If that happens, Maybe other mothers can be spared the trauma of losing their freedom as well as their children. It could be the one silver lining to come out of an otherwise heartbreaking tragedy. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Keith D., a former rapper and drug dealer who has a compelling secret to share. In 1996, 25-year-old hip-hop legend Tupac Shakur was killed in a drive-by shooting. Police and detectives had no idea who the assailant was. But then in 2018, over 20 years since the infamous murder, an ex-gang member called Keith D came forward with a confession to make. He was in the car with the man who shot Tupac. Two decades after the tragedy that horrified the world, Will Keith D's deathbed confession finally spill who really killed Tupac Shakur? Deathbed. 
Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Rob Scragg. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound design by Matias Torres-Solé. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Listeners, I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify.